So I want to add my welcome to Shannon's this morning. Whether you are with us here in the sanctuary, whether you are joining us at home this morning through our live stream, whether you are listening on KTCU, however you are a part of this body of Christ, just know that you are a part of this body of Christ, and we are thankful for your presence with us. We are continuing a series this morning that we are calling The Leading Causes of Life. We're all familiar, aren't we, with the leading causes of death? In fact, we are way too familiar, unfortunately, with the leading causes of death, particularly in this time of the pandemic. Uh, you may have seen this last week, the report came out with the staggering numbers, the grim milestone in this fight against the deadly coronavirus that one in 500 Americans have now died from COVID-19. Let that sink in for just a moment. One in 500. And not only that, with this recent spike, it came out this morning, just this morning, that we are now back up to 2,000 deaths per day here in the United States. Frankly, we are surrounded by way too much death. But that's not what God intends for us. You may remember that Jesus said that He came that we might have life and life to the fullest. That we might have abundant life. And so we are focusing on the leading causes, not of death, but of life. And in this, fact, in this series, we're looking at some of those factors we've, we've talked about. Uh, we've talked about connection. We've talked about coherence, which, a fancy word for meaning and purpose. We've talked about agency, which is the, the way in which we move our actions in this world. Last week, we talked about what it means to be a blessing in this world. Today, we're going to talk about hope. And our text comes from Romans chapter 5, but in, in a way, I'm going to be talking about all of Romans, uh, the sort of the overall narrative of this letter. Now, Rome, Romans was written by Paul to the early Christian community in Rome. It's one of the most deliberate, one of the most uh, significant of all of Paul's letters, uh, had the, perhaps the greatest influence on Christian theology of all of Paul's writings. And although it appears first uh, in the Bible, in the canon there, uh, most scholars believe that it was the final, the last thing that Paul ever wrote. And so in some ways it was sort of a culmination of everything that he had learned, everything that he had discovered, everything that he came to be true. If you've ever read this letter, if you've not, I encourage you to do so. It gets a little dense at times, but I would encourage you not to let that intimidate you. It is worth the read. Just plow through it. And what you will find is a complex but rich theological treatise filled with reason and hope. And in this little pericope that we'll be looking at, Paul talks, Paul talks about suffering. He talks about brokenness and how through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ that all of that leads us towards hope. So listen now to this word from Romans chapter 5. Today's scripture reading is found in the book of Romans, chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Here begins the reading. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand. And we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. And not only that, but we also boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. 
and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. Here ends the reading, the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Hope does not disappoint us. In many ways, that is part of what it means to be a person of faith. To nurture a relationship with the divine is to experience a level of hope. Hope is not just a nice, religious, churchy word. It's, in many ways, at the heart of what it means to live fully and richly, to live the life that God intends for us to live. One of the best gifts of the church is that it calls people to live hopefully, filled with hope, oftentimes contrary to the materialism, to the despair that so often permeate our culture. You know, we often say when we speak of our children that all we want, we just, we just want them to be happy. Not what I want for my children. Wait, wait a minute, that sounded wrong. That sounded wrong. That's not what I want most for my children. Not that I want them to be unhappy. I just think then oftentimes that's the wrong goal. And that more importantly than that, that what we do when we say to our children, I just want you to be happy, is that we set them up for failure. Because happiness is not something that can be sought directly. Happiness is a byproduct. Something that comes in the side door. Happiness, for happiness sake, is the wrong goal. A couple of weeks ago after church, Larry Ivey came through the line at the door following my sermon, and he handed me this piece of paper that had a quote that had been meaningful to him, one that he thought would work well for this series, and I think he's right. He says, the purpose of life is not to be happy. The purpose of life is to matter, to be productive, to have it make a difference that you lived at all. You see, happiness comes in the side door not when we are focused on happiness, seeking happiness for happiness' sake, but rather when we live a life filled with meaning and purpose. My mom texted me between services today after hearing my sermon this morning, and she reminded me of something that Eleanor Roosevelt once said, happiness is not a goal, it is a byproduct. You see, happiness comes in the side door when we are focused on living a life of meaning and purpose. And so when I think of my kids, and when I think of your children, what matters most to me is not the college that they will choose, it's not the career that they will follow, it's not the money that they will earn, but what matters is essentially three questions. Will they live with hope? Will they discover that deep down, that feeling inside their souls that their lives really do matter? And thirdly, will they know that they have something to contribute to this world? That they have not only the ability, but the responsibility to make the world a better place. You see, these are the essential questions of hope. In the text that Mike read just a moment ago, Paul is writing about hope. And he begins the book by, by painting a picture about the human situation. And if this were an actual picture, we might entitle it, All of the Broken Pieces. 
You see, we've all experienced, have we not? We've all experienced brokenness in some way, shape, or form at some point in our lives. We do have this sense that life is fragmented, that life doesn't always work exactly how we pictured or how we planned, that something oftentimes is missing. And I would argue that part of the reason that we come here each week is to find that which we are looking for. In one of my previous churches, there was a family. It's a good family, a loving family, an all-American family. The father had a, had a great career. The mom was one of the funniest, one of the wittiest people that I've ever known. They had a couple daughters that were lovely people, grown up and married off. But one of the daughters, though, went through a living hell with a husband that was out of control. He became a drug user. He, uh, there were financial issues. There was an awful custody battle that came as a result, uh, engrossing the entire family. This beautiful family, which from the outside looked picture perfect, their life was unraveling. The mother who had been trying to help her daughter, help her grandchild, looked at me one day in the hall as I passed them between services. And I just asked, how are things going? And with tears in her eyes, she simply said, this sort of thing doesn't happen to people like us. It's worse than a soap opera. She said, I can't believe this is happening. And the tears began to roll down her face. Her deep human cry, this feeling of utter dismay is not just her cry. I would argue that in many ways it's your cry, it's my cry, it's the, the cry of any person that's ever walked this earth. It's the cry for help, but it's also a cry for hope. Paul later in his letter writes that the whole world, the whole creation has been groaning. The whole creation has been groaning, and, and maybe... Maybe you've never felt this painful groaning, but my guess is that you have. Either that or someone that you know and love has. That the whole world, the whole creation is groaning for a new beginning, for salvation, for hope. For those broken, fragmented pieces of our lives to be reconnected. In his book, A Larger Hope, Scott Colglazier tells the story of a young woman by the name of Kelly Perkins. Back in the 90s, she was an active, vivacious woman, uh, full of life. She was in her mid-30s. She was, had a great living as a real estate agent, but her passion, her passion more than anything else, was backpacking and hiking and mountain climbing. One night, though, she was laying in bed, and her heart began to race, and she sort of knew deep down that something was wrong. So she went to see her doctor. The doctor just sort of dismissed it and said, you know what, Kelly, it's probably just stress. Nothing you need to worry about. But yet she couldn't give up that feeling deep down inside that something was wrong, something was really wrong. This was not just in her head. She was training for a backpacking trip, and, and just before she was set to leave, she decided to go back one more time and just, just get herself checked out again. This time the test, though, suggested that her heart was running amok. So she was taken to a nearby hospital, uh, for more advanced tests, and those tests showed that her left ventricle in her heart was scarred and swollen to about four times its normal size. The test shows that there was some mysterious virus that was infecting her heart, and her only hope, her only hope was a new heart. So she was admitted to the medical center at UCLA, 
and put at the top of the heart transplant list. Coincidentally, only a few miles from the hospital, that very weekend, a 40-year-old woman was thrown from a horse, tragically died that very night. In what was death for one became life for another. The next year, in fact, just 10 months later, 10 months after her heart transplant, Kelly went back to one of her passions, hiking the California mountains. Not just hiking, like I said, it was uh, they climbed Yosemite's Half Dome, which if you've ever seen it, is quite spectacular. That next year, she did something even more dramatic. She became the first person with a heart transplant to climb Mount Whitney, 14,000 feet. After that, people wanted to interview her. They wanted to hear her story, so they started interviewing her. She became uh, f somewhat famous, appeared in newspapers and magazines. She even showed up one morning on Good Morning America. Incidentally, that very morning, while getting ready for school, was a young girl in Northern California, Southern California, that was watching Good Morning America, who put two and two together and realized that her mom had died just a few months before that, that it was her heart that was beating inside of Kelly. So she reached out, contact was made, connection was established. In the meantime, Kelly was preparing one more climb, this time to Mount Fuji in Japan. Although it's only 12,000 feet, it's regarded as a sacred place in part because of its majestical beauty. Some have said that to watch a sunrise at the top of Mount Fuji is as close to a spiritual, a religious experience, an encounter with God that any folks would ever see. And here's Kelly. She's 5'3", 95 pounds. She has a heart much bigger than the one that beats inside of us. And she made that arduous climb up to the top of Mount Fuji each step was grueling and hard, but she made it. After several difficult hours, she and her husband made it to the top just, just as the sun was starting to peak above the horizon. Now, what Kelly didn't know in that moment was that her husband had made arrangements with that teenage girl, and he was carrying a picture of the woman who had died that gave her life. And not just a picture, but he was also carrying a bag, and in that bag was some of her ashes. And as they talked about the significance of this moment, this story, the story of this woman who gave Kelly back her life, they began to weep. And she wept with gratitude, but more than that, she wept with a sense that this woman that she had never met, who had died tragically, enabled her to reclaim her life, that she was with her in that moment. And so holding on to that photo, she spread those ashes at the top. And half a world away, that daughter discovered a sense of healing as well, knowing, knowing that her mother's heart, that her mother's spirit was still alive in this world. I would argue that there is nothing more satisfying when, than when the broken circles of our lives are reconnected. And it might not be as dramatic as climbing Mount Fuji, but to heal the wounds, to complete those broken circles of our lives, it means everything in our pursuit of wholeness, in pursuit of the life 
we long to live. Kelly and her husband have gone on to climb some of the most incredible difficult mountains in the world. She has become a leading advocate in getting people to be organ donors. You see, most of us live in some way with the pain of loss. Most of us live with some rubble of broken relationships, or maybe it's death or divorce or a disease or betrayal, you name it. Only you know what those things are in your life. But it is right there in the midst of the mess, in the midst of the rubble, that hope is born. It's in the midst of the mess that hope lives and moves. And so when Paul says that we are justified by faith, that through Christ we have access to the grace in which we stand, he is saying that we are made whole by the pieces of our lives that are glued back together. That this happens in our lives when we realize that all of life is a gift, even the messy parts, even the painful parts, even the hard parts, that in those moments we discover that God's love for us never ceases. So no wonder when the first people that heard this message looked at it and heard it and said, that, that is gospel. That is good news. Now that doesn't mean that every story is going to have a happy ending. That the painful parts of our lives just sort of magically disappear. As a pastor, I've been with way too many people in far too many situations that didn't turn out the way that they had hoped, the way that they had prayed. That there was not a happy ending. There was not a glimpse of anything good or redeemable or even sensible. But even there, but even there, God was present, holding them together even when everything was falling apart. One of my favorite stories in all of Scripture is the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's in the Old Testament, the story of Daniel. And at that time, these three young men... We're all living and working together in this foreign land. And the king at that time said that everyone was to bow down and to worship him. Now these were good Israelites and they said, no, 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 that's not how it works. We worship God and God alone. We will bow down only to the God of Israel. Well, they came and said, well, if you don't, we're going to throw you in the fiery furnace. And they said, well, if that's the way it is, that's the way it is but we will not bow down. So that's what happened. They threw them in the fiery furnace, and all the scholars that read this say that that is a metaphor, that is a, a symbol for the, the hell that our lives sometimes are. But in the story, in the story as they open the furnace, after they had been thrown in, they look in and somebody says, wait a minute, why are they not being consumed and second of all, didn't we throw three into the fire, but yet there are four? And the fourth appears to be the Son of God. You see, even in the hellish parts of our lives, God is with us. God is holding us in the very palm of our hands. In those moments when it feels like we're falling into hell, God catches us and holds us and will not let us go. You see, hope says that no matter what happens, that God will be present in it. Or maybe you can say it this way. Hope is not about a result. Hope 
is about a relationship. You see, hope is the confident expectation not that everything will turn out like we like, but that no matter how things turn out, we will know and we will feel that we are being held in the loving arms of God. As Scott said, hope is the porch light that shines in the night, welcoming us home, reminding us that we have a place in this world. It's the one phone call that comes when everyone else has stopped calling. It's the card that comes when the old friend that simply says, you are loved. The circle of life remains unbroken as long as there is a presence of hope. See, living hopefully doesn't mean that bad things will not happen. But it does mean that when we face suffering, that when brokenness comes in life, we discover in that moment the courage to live fully and richly and hopefully, to know in that moment, in that moment, that we are not alone, that God is there. You see, that, that is where hope is born. It's not a wishful thinking type of hope that we'll all end up happy. But it's a hope that leads us to wholeness, life. And that's the leading cause of life. Hope that is found in the goodness and the faithfulness of God and in the strength of a loving community. Hope is born in the rubble and in the brokenness in those moments when it feels like we've fallen into hell, but we land in the very palm of God's hand. Hope, the leading cause of life. Amen.